0: Good morning, my name is Austin, um, I'm a pastoral intern here, and today we have the privilege of covering off the last section of chapter 2 in the book of First Peter. So let me invite you to open your Bibles um, to First Peter chapter 2, that's where we're going to be, and we're going to start reading um, from verse 18, because that's where we're going to be covering from. First Peter chapter 2 starting from verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while, while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good, When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the overseer of your souls. How about we pray? Heavenly Father and gracious God, We just thank you for your wonderful word of encouragement to us this morning. We pray that your word would go out in power this morning. We pray that you would soften our hearts, soften my heart as we pour over your scriptures. Fill us by your spirit. Fill me with your spirit to to preach boldly and faithfully in this. And Father, if there's one prayer for us this morning, is that you would set the captives free today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let, me, um, let me read to you a email, an email that a sweet old lady uh, once sent to a pastor in America. She wrote him an email, and this is what she writes, recounting an incident that occurred earlier in her day. She writes, I was in the McDonald's drive through this morning and the young lady behind me leaned on her horn because i was taking too long to place my order she writes in brackets i was ordering something different and had to check the menu take the high road i thought to myself but when i got back to the first when i got to the first window i paid for her order along with my own The cashier must have told her what I had done, because as she moved forward in line, the driver leaned out the window, she sheepishly waved to me and mouthed, Thank you. She was clearly embarrassed I had repaid her rudeness with kindness. Now, for the purpose of providing me with a virtuous sermon illustration, I wish that the lady's email finished there, but it doesn't. She actually continues writing, When I got to the second window, I showed the clerk both of the receipts, took the food I ordered as well as the food she ordered, and drove away. (laughs) The rude woman was forced to go back to the end of the line and start all over. She continues to write, The lesson, don't honk your horn at senior's. P.S., she writes, I've been looking in four different Bible versions to find the verse that says what I did was acceptable in certain circumstances, but for some reason I haven't located it yet. (laughs) Friends, you know, as great an illustration, that first part of the email could have been for my sermon, right? If we are completely honest with ourselves, there is something instinctively satisfying about that second part of the email, isn't there? (laughs) And yet, to be awfully honest with you, as amusing as this story is, there was a part of me that felt sad in reading this as well. Sad for the lady because she was so close. She was so close to doing something gracious. Yet still in the last moment, she found herself still enslaved to the impulse of wanting to get even. You see, friends, the reality is that we live, that we are a people who are drawn towards getting even, especially when we feel in control of the process of getting even. I mean, this is the very appeal of so many of Quentin Tarantino's movies, isn't it? It's the appeal of movies like John Wick and why songs like Taylor Swift's Better Than Revenge and Bad Blood makes the top 100. As Timothy Keller has insightfully commented, American and likewise our culture, Western culture, what it does is that it pits self-fulfillment against self-sacrifice. And when we do this, it will produce revenge or withdrawal as a response to any mistreatment. In such a culture, forgiveness is seen as self-hating and revenge and anger are considered authentic. In other words, not only are we people who are not naturally inclined to endure and to overlook offences, even small offences, but we in fact live in a culture Where doing so is at best considered inauthentic, and at worst is considered self-hating. And so it has to be said that this is by no means an easy topic for me to navigate, for us to navigate. Furthermore, to be awfully honest with you, it hasn't been an easy topic for me to write on, as I've had some pretty convicting reflections on what my own normative response is when I am wronged. But despite this being an uncomfortable subject, it's a crucial one. It's a crucial one because it's part and parcel of what it means to live out the Christian life. I've titled today's message, Grace in the Face of Unjust Suffering. You know, there were so many different avenues that I could have taken with this particular text. I could have either focused on how we are supposed to be in the workplace or how we should approach relationships with those who are in seniority over us. But what I really felt led to speak about this uh, was this today, the core of what the text is calling us to do, and that is God's call for us. God's call for us to respond graciously to unjust suffering is at the heart of it a call for us to live in the freedom that we have in Christ. Let me say that again. God's call for us to respond graciously to unjust suffering is at the heart of it a call for us to live in the freedom that we have in Christ. And we're going to cover this topic from three different angles. Firstly, we're going to cover it from the perspective of their historical context, as in Paul's original audience. Secondly, we're going to cover it from the perspective of Christ's timeless example. And thirdly, from the perspective of our current reality. So three points. Their historical context, Christ's timeless example, and number three, our current reality. Okay, point number one, their historical context. What is the very first word that we see in this passage today? What's the very first word? Servants. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. When we read verse 18, we might not think much of it, But you know, when the original recipients of Peter's letter read servants as the very first word, they would have been absolutely astounded. Let me explain why. From chapter 2, verses 13, all the way to chapter 3, verse 7, Peter writes in the format of what is called a household code. You see, in Greco-Roman culture, household codes were instructions written normally by moral philosophers on what they thought was good, was good guidelines for running a household. People like Plato or Aristotle, Plutarch, Seneca, and even Jewish writers like Philo all wrote their own versions of household codes. And most household codes of that period primarily addressed the man of the house. It addressed the man of the house, sometimes the wife, occasionally the children, but pretty much never the servants. And if there was any mention of servants, they were just mentioned in the third person. They should do so-and-so. They should do so-and-so. Aristotle even argued that servants were just animated pieces of property. Overall, these servants were not considered full persons, and therefore they didn't have moral responsibilities, right? So what is surprising here in 1 Peter is that household servants are actually even addressed by Peter. Not only are they addressed, but they are the very first group of people that Peter addresses specifically. On top of that, he addresses them in the second person. He writes, When you sin, when you do good, when you endure... He's addressing them directly. You see, Peter's address to, to the servants basically builds on the foundation that he laid all the way back in verse 9. What's the foundation he laid back in verse 9? That you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that includes, as much as anyone else, the servants in their midst— Peter here is demolishing, he's absolutely demolishing a cultural norm of that time. He's, not, he's saying that household, household servants, they're not non-entities. But he, by addressing them firstly, emphasizes that in the sight of God, these servants are chosen and precious. And because of that, how they live matters. They have moral responsibilities It profoundly matters to God. So how exactly were these servants to live then? Well, since they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, surely, surely at this point, Peter is going to tell these servants to rise up, to revolt, to demand that they be treated as royalty. Well, maybe not as royalty, but but at least better, right? But look at what Peter says in verse 18. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. You know what? This feels like a bit of a bit of an anticlimax, doesn't it? What are you serious, Peter? You've said on one hand that these servants are chosen and they're precious in the sight of God, and yet you want them to subject themselves to their masters, regardless of how their masters treat them. Well, just to unpack this, just to make sense of this for a moment, let me enlist your imagination. Just imagine with me for a moment. Let's say there were two servants, two servants who lived in the region of Cappadocia, and they served the same master, both of them that have gathered at church and they have listened to Peter's epistle for the very first time. Both of them love what they've heard from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 2, verse 17. But then they are both struck by verse 18. The first servant, though initially taken aback by Peter's words and Peter's imperative to live this out, he still resolves, okay, I'm going to give this a go. Though his master may be quite temperamental, he diligently seeks to do good for his master regardless of how he is treated. At times he is beaten unfairly, yet he reminds himself of what Peter has said, that it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So instead of focusing on how his master treats him, he sets his mind on God's presence and God's unfailing care for him. And he takes comfort in the fact that when he does good and suffers for it and endures, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is what the first servant does. However, the second servant, right, he considers Peter's instructions. He thinks over it. And then he's like, no, no, no way am I going to do that. No way can I do that. And so he decides he's going to tweak verse 18 just a little bit. And this is what he does to the verse. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, particularly to the good and gentle, but definitely not to the unjust. In other words, what he does is that he decides that his submission to his master will be, this is the key word, conditional. It will be conditional upon how his master treats him. If his master does good to him, then he will return good to his master. But if his master mistreats him or offends him, his whole disposition changes. His heart hardens. His hand slackens. And because of this, his master actually finds him quite unreliable. He works well one day, and then he slacks off the next. His master beats him on the days that he slacks off which then only embitters his heart against his master all the more. You know what is happening, my friends? Unwittingly, this servant's actions and reactions are increasingly governed by how he perceives he's being treated by his master. Slowly but surely over time, the reality becomes the reality becomes that he the way that he behaves, the way that he acts is just a mirror image of how he is treated by his master. Little does he know, but he is actually more enslaved than ever by his master. His actions, his mindset, his feelings, right? His whole outlook on life is increasingly controlled by how his master treats him. You see, the key that really unlocks all that we're going to cover today is actually found in last week's passage. If you flick back to verse uh, verse 16, look at what it says. Verse 16 says, Live as people who are free. Right? Free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So then... When we have this key verse in our mind, let me ask you a question, Church. Both of these servants, they have the same master. Both of these servants have effectually, effectively the same social status. But which one of these servants, which one of these servants would you say is truly living as a person who is free? Let's say we also include the master into this question. He is temperamental and he finds himself changing and shifting his attitude towards his different servants based on his perception of their quality of service to him. Again, I ask you the question, church, which one of them, which one of those three is truly living as a person who is truly free? You see, friends, when we boil it down, there are only really two approaches to how we go about our relationships. The approach that the master and the second servant takes is best described as the conditional way. The conditional way is when our responses to people, by and large, are conditional upon the way that they treat us or whether they are useful for us. To use the words of the Apostle Paul found in Galatians 4, this approach... This approach is in in accordance to the elementary principles of the world. The established norms of relationship an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a favor for a favor, a compliment for a compliment, an invite for an invite, an insult for an insult, a cold shoulder for a cold shoulder. You see, the conditional way of doing relationships is the way of the enslaved. Trapped in a cycle of tit for tat, hypersensitized to every perceived offense, imprisoned in a cage forged with bars of self righteousness, spite, vindictiveness, and bitterness. But the approach taken by the first servant, in God's eyes, is the gracious way. It is the way. Of freedom. When we take this path, the way that we respond to people is no longer conditional upon their treatment of us. We no longer find ourselves vexed by the wrongs done against us. We no longer find ourselves aggravated that people may perpetrate things against us. Think about it. It is only a truly free person who can turn the other cheek when they're struck in the face. It is only a truly free person who can offer their tunic when they've been robbed of their cloak. It is only a free person who can love when they are hated. It is only a truly free person who can lend and expect nothing in return. So now, church, let me ask you a set of harder questions. Let me ask myself these questions. Are we really living as people who are free How often do we find ourselves wound up, just wound up by perceived or actual mistreatment by others? Do we find ourselves replaying time and time again the hurts that we have endured? How quickly do we find ourselves triggered or offended by people around us, by what they say or what they do? Are there people in our lives that have this incredible ability regardless of what they say or do, right to annoy us or to infuriate us? What is our default response when we are overlooked that promotion at work or we are unfairly blamed for something that we didn't do wrong? How often do we find ourselves rehearsing in our minds what we should have said or what we're going to say next time that particular person says something nasty to us again? Are there ever social occasions where we avoid or we miss because we know that that particular person will be there? How often do we find ourselves praying for the people who hate us? And so I ask again, church, are we really living as people who are free? You know, as we reflect on all the ways that we may still be living in an enslaved way, by how we are treated by others. The question that may arise in our minds is, okay, that's great, but what exactly does freedom look like? What does it actually look like to live as someone who's free? What exactly are we called to? Which brings us to our second point, Christ's timeless example. Read with me verse 21 to 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, friends, Scripture actually provides us a crystal clear image of of what our calling looks like. Scripture provides for us a vivid detail of what it looks like to be truly free. You know, in fact, the Greek word that is translated in our English uh, translations as example is the word hypergrammon. hypergrammon. is can actually be used to refer to a stencil or a template that children used to use back in the day to learn how to trace the Greek alphabet. right? Commentator Karen Jones says this, English words such as example or model or pattern, they're just too weak for to explain um, what Jesus' example is. It says, for Jesus' suffering is not simply an example. It's not just a pattern. It's not just a model as if one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of the gospel in their lives. If Christians are to live as servants of God, as described in verse 16, the essence, the essence of that identity is a willingness to suffer unjustly as Jesus did. You see, friends, Christ is the template. He is the paradigm of what it looks like to live as people who are free to live as servants of God, even and especially in the face of unjust suffering. But not just that, Christ was absolutely and perfectly innocent in his unjust suffering. Using the words of Isaiah 53, Peter tells us plainly that the hatred and the suffering that Jesus endured was entirely on the part of those who hated him. For Jesus, it says, committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, he was perfectly innocent in the persecution that he suffered. And despite this, and despite this, it says in verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Betrayed by Judas, seized by the temple guards, lied against by false witnesses, spat at, struck, slapped by the Sanhedrin, denied by Peter, accused by the chief priest and the elders, questioned by the governor, passed over for a murderer, stripped, scourged, and mocked by the soldiers, derided by strangers, and then crucified for our sins. And yet, he did not revile in return. He did not threaten response. Listen to what Wayne Gruden writes about human nature. This is what he says. The instinctive response of human beings when so abused is to try to get even, to hurt in return for being hurt. Or if that is impossible, people will threaten to get even later, trying to give their enemies at least the anxiety that revenge may be taken sometime in the future. Yet Christ is entrusted himself to him who judges justly and entrusted the whole situation. He delivered it up to God. This, my friends, is the model, the template, the paradigm for what truly living in freedom looks like. Let me ask you, church, you know, out of every person that was involved in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ through it all, Who do you think was the person who operated in perfect freedom? Was it Judas? Was it the chief priests, the elders or the scribes? Was it Pilate? Was it Peter? No, all of these people in one way or another, if you look at the story, they were constrained by the fear of how some other group of people would respond or treat them if they acted in a certain way. But Jesus Jesus, through all of this, he was the freest person through this whole ordeal. Even in the face of death, and even with the option of appealing to his father for 12 legions of angels, his freedom came from simply entrusting the entire situation to him who judges justly. And as he kept trusting God, he had the freedom to not only not make a defense for himself in front of the Sanhedrin, As he kept trusting God, he had the freedom to even tell Pilate that he had no authority over him unless it had been given him from above. Even when Jesus was nailed to a cross, when he was nailed to the cross, this is as physically constrained as a man could possibly be. But in his trust of God, it gave him such an immense freedom while being crucified, while being physically constrained, That he gave him the freedom from bitterness or spite, so much so that he was able to pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Friends, the way that Jesus Christ lived his life is the example, it is the model, the pattern, the template, the stencil, the paradigm of how we are to live freely. Freedom to be reviled, but no need to revile in return. Freedom to suffer unjustly, but have no need to threaten. Freedom to love in the face of hatred. Freedom to endure suffering whilst doing good. You know, so far I've outlined in the very first point that true freedom is when we are able to return good in the face of evil. The second point that I just covered is that Jesus is the paradigm for this freedom. Freedom but what i want what, what i've yet to cover is how this freedom has been given this freedom has been given to us and so we turn to our third and final point for today our current reality this is what peter says to us in verses 24 to 25 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, brothers and sisters, the truth is that for every for every single one of our sins, for every wrongdoing that we have ever committed, someone or some group of people must ultimately bear the cost of that sin. Someone must ultimately endure the pain caused by that sin. Someone must ultimately endure the the, the suffering of the curse which accompanies that sin. Someone must ultimately carry the debt that is incurred by the sin. And you know, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality would, would be that each of us would have to carry upon ourselves the full cost of all the sins that we ever committed. We would carry upon ourselves the pain and the damage caused by our wrongs. The curse of our sins would follow us like a stench everywhere that we went. The burden of our debt would place a crippling weight upon our shoulders. This is slavery. This is imprisonment. But praise be to God that this is not our reality. No, not at all. Christ bore in his body the cost of our sins he absorbed the cost he took upon himself the damage he suffered god 's punishment in our place for our sin. he paid our debt in full he paid our debt in full and when Peter says that he bore our sins in his body on the tree on the tree, Peter is using language that is found in Deuteronomy to indicate that on that tree on that cross god 's own son took upon himself the curse of sin so that we may be free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Therefore, since we are people who are free, since we are people who have been freed from the cost of our sin, since we are people who have been liberated from the curse of our sin, since we are people who have been released from the debt of the burden of our sin, we should consider it of little account now to absorb the cost of someone else's wrongs done towards us. That is how we receive our freedom. This is the freedom that has been purchased for us so that it may be lived out by us. In fact, Peter is so adamant, he's so certain that our salvation in Christ is so great, he is so certain that our freedom is so wondrous, that in these final verses of chapter 2, he gives us three, not one, three powerful illustrations to drive home this point. Firstly, this newfound freedom that we are given is expressed in resurrection language. We find resurrection language here. Oh, brothers and sisters, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might what? What does it say? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is resurrection language here. Your slavery to sin is finished. It's dead. You've been freed from its shackles and instead you rise now to a newness of life, a life of righteousness. As Paul says in Romans 6, 6, our Old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. O church, the reality of now being dead to sin and alive to righteousness is that we no longer need to live with a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye mentality. In our new life of righteousness, we have the freedom, we have the capacity to repay evil with good. It is now a genuine possibility. Adding to this is the second illustration. Peter again draws from Isaiah 53 when he says, By his wounds you have been healed. He now switches from resurrection language to medical language. We are reminded here that our once spiritually fatal wounds have been healed by Christ's wounds upon the cross. This holistic healing that we have received in Christ frees us to weather the blows and the wounds of our earthly relationships. And as we weather them, we are free to still return good in the face of evil. Lastly, Peter employs pastoral language. He employs pastoral language to give us his final encouragement. He says that you were straying like sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. You see, friends, If you are a lost sheep with no fold to sleep in at night and no shepherd to watch over you at night, you are not free to let your guard down. You are not free. You must be constantly on alert for every threat. You must assume that everyone that you make contact with may potentially harm you. You develop self-protection mechanisms to keep yourself from getting hurt from others, whether that's withdrawal or defensiveness, right? In effect, when you don't have a shepherd, you do not have the freedom. You do not have the latitude to repay evil for good. It's just too risky. But church, this is not our reality because praise be to God that we have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. We have a faithful chief shepherd who guards our souls. Therefore, therefore we have the freedom to know that when we are in the presence, even when we are in the presence of our enemies, he anoints our heads with oil and our cup overflows. Even in the midst of unjust suffering, we can declare that surely, surely goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. Oh, church, you know, as I close, let me encourage you to press into this freedom that we've been given in Christ. To endure, to do good in every context that you find yourself in, even when you face unjust suffering. I say this firstly because verse 21 explicitly it tells us to this you have been called. This is our calling. If you've ever wondered what your calling is, this forms an integral part of our calling. But also because living and relating to others in this way is in lockstep with who you fundamentally are in Christ. Living in any other way would actually be contrary to the nature of, Of the life that flows within your soul, and lastly, as you live this out, right, and it's this is embedded in the passage, right? It is a gracious thing. Remember that's what the passage said. As you live this out, there will be. This is the promise of this passage. There will be hidden gems of joy, and peace, and grace that are uncovered as you live out this life. To illustrate what I mean, let me finish by telling you a story from the 20th century Chinese Christian church leader, Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee recounts this story. He tells us that there were once two Christian brothers who had a rice paddy. Rice paddies, as you know, they need to be irrigated with lots and lots of water. Their paddy, these two Christian brothers' rice paddy, was halfway up the hill. There were other rice paddies lower down on the hill. And so in the great heat of the day, they would bucket this water to irrigate their paddy. In the evening, they went to sleep. But while they were sleeping, the farmer, lowered down, decided to dig a hole in the irrigation channel surrounding the brothers' field and let all their water flow into their paddies. The next morning, the brothers saw what had happened, but they said nothing. Again, they filled their channels with water. The following day they saw that their field had been emptied again, but still they did not say anything. They were Christians and they felt they should endure in silence. This happened every single day for a week. They filled it up, it was drained. They filled it up, it was drained. They filled it up, it was drained, it up, it was drained and stolen. Some people suggested that they stand guard at night right, to catch that thief and to beat him. They did not say a word in response. They just endured because they were Christians. But you know, strangely enough, even though they drew water every day and remained silent while others stole it, they did not have peace. They did not have peace in their hearts. So they went to another Christian brother to seek his counsel on what to do about the situation. They said, we don't understand. We have no peace in our hearts after enduring for seven or eight days. Christians should endure and allow others to steal from them, but we do not have peace in our hearts. Then the other brother replied to them this, you have not done enough, nor have you endured enough. You should first fill the field of the person who has stolen your water. Then you can fill your own field. Go and try this and see whether you have peace within. They both agreed. The next day they got up earlier than usual and they filled the field of the person who had stolen their water. And as they were filling his field, they became more and more joyful. When they came to fill their own field, for the first time in over a week, they had peace in their hearts. After two or three days of doing this, the person who had stolen their water came to them to apologize, saying if this is Christianity I want to hear about it. How about we finish with a word of prayer? Actually um, friends, I I perceive that some of us here at this very moment, you are, you're in the valley of decision. You're thinking to yourself, I want to be free. I want to be free. But can I, can I really let go of those past hurts? Can I really be free from this prison of bitterness and resentment? How do I show grace to that colleague or that family member or that past friend who has done me such harm. And so the image that comes to my mind as I look out today is that as you stand in the valley of decision, there are actually two different Peters that are calling out to you. You've got the disciple Peter, and then you've got the apostle Peter, the The disciple Peter takes you aside and he points you to the wide path and he says to you, just as he did to our Lord Jesus, Oh, far be it from you. This shall never happen to you. Let me encourage you to take the easy path. On the other hand, the Apostle Peter, having already walked a long way down the narrow but free path, calls out to you today and he lovingly beckons you to join him by simply repeating the words, that we heard today. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called. Our brother or sister, whoever you may be, the devil would love for you right now to shrink back into that cage of hurt, that cage of bitterness, that cage of spite. But my prayer for you this morning is that you would say, get Behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. But instead today, my prayer for you is that you would resolve to take that path of suffering where on it you will will experience freedom. That as you deny yourself, that you take up the cross and you follow Jesus, yes, in one sense, you will lose your life. But in a greater sense, you'll find it. So Heavenly Father, we just pray for each and every one of our hearts here today, Lord. Lord, you have given us an exemplary example, a paradigm for what it is to repay evil with good. We can't do this by our own strength, but you have given us this freedom in your gospel. And so Father, Father, Our simple prayer is that you would set the captives free this very morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.